You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Here's what we found out in the Gallup poll. Gallup poll surveyed about 150,000 people around the world. 150,000 people around the world. And last year, Americans reported feeling more stress and anger and worry at the highest levels than any decade. Gallup poll not only discovered that with 150,000 people around the world, but the American Psychological Association reported that to be the same as well. About 55% of adults said they experienced stress during a, quote, lot of the day prior to just 35% globally. Statistically, that put our country on par with number one country in this category, which would be Greece, which held the highest stress rankings in 2012. And we all, we know our history, just recent history, we know what happened in Greece just that long ago. About 45% of the Americans surveyed said that they had felt, quote, a lot of worry compared with a global average of 39%. That there's a lot of anger which exceeded the global average. Matter of fact, the most common sources of stress in all of this data, 63% said it was the future of our nation. 62% said money. 61% said work. 57% said current political climate. 51% said violence and crime. Highest we can see. From age 72 plus, older adults, 56%. The baby boomers, 57%. And here's the part that I found interesting. From ages 39 to 52, the category or description of people called Gen Xers, 61%. And then the millennials, from 18 to 38, 59%. Why did I share all this with you? Well, I just need us to see something that some of us who are in a particular profession sees quite often when you work with lots of people and you deal with life issues. As a pastor, you get a lot of that. We're stressed out, man. But we're not just stressed out in the way we used to be stressed. See, in the world of trauma study, um, there, there is this, uh, oh, it's not up there. In the world of trauma study, there are three types of stress. If you look at the version app, it's there. There's acute stress. Acute stress is the kind of stress that we feel uh, just it kind of comes and goes. You have a bill due and you can't pay the bill and it creates stress. That's acute stress. You have a paper due and you're not ready for the paper or an exam due. That's acute stress. You have an appointment or a conflict you got to get into or you got a conversation with somebody you're not looking forward to and it stresses you out. That's acute stress. Acute stress comes and goes. It's called acute stress. Say acute stress. There's nothing cute about it, right? I get stressful. But then there's what's called episodic acute stress. Episodic acute stress is the kind of stress that we live into in episodes. So it's every month. It's every month. Come bill time, we get a little more stress than other stresses. That episodic acute stress can do things to the body. That's why I'm talking about this. Because even the Proverbs and the psalmist knew that anxiety to the heart, to quote a proverb, is weariness or heaviness to the bones. Raise your hand if you've ever gotten a stress headache. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you ever got stressed stomach aches. That just goes to show stress impacts our bodies. There's a physiological response that our body feels from the way our brain is processing this little thing called life that leads to these things called stress. 
Episodic acute stress is acute stress that happens in episodes. That can affect us. But there's one form of stress, and many people live with that stress. There's another form of stress that really can affect us, so much so that it can rewire the brain. They can literally malform or rewire the brain. It's called, epi- it's called chronic stress. Chronic stress is a stress that people live with when they're living through poverty. Chronic stress is a stress that a lot of times first responders live with on a very regular basis. Chronic stress can rewire, fundamentally rewire the brain. It can rewire the brain in such a point that it completely impacts how one makes decisions. It can completely impact how one processes things. It can actually cut down the ability one has to process everyday routine things. It can scramble the brain. And God made our brains, it's called neuroplasticity, God made our brains to adapt to our situation. So our brains are like Play-Doh. They can adjust and form to whatever situation we're in. And if we're in that situation long enough, the brain will adapt to that situation. So when I teach this, this is how I like to say it. Let's say your brain runs on 35 mile per hour in a regular day. Acute stress may speed it up to 45, maybe 55, but then it settles down to 35. And let's say that it moves in episodes, and that happens regularly. And so your brain is always on a rhythmic and episodic basis, going from 35 to 55, 35 to 55, 35 to 55. Well, the body will adjust to that, and that's what will send the body, the autonomic nervous system, all types of things will start to move and start to work in such a way that you get stress headaches or you get stomach aches. But now chronic stress is a different ballgame. Chronic stress is when you're living in a high end. Your brain may run at a normal 35, but something happens and you're thrust into poverty or you're thrust into loss. Or better yet, you're thrust into any of these situations where there's constant wear and tear on daily decisions, where there's constant life threat, where there's consistent loss, where there's consistent inner conflict with what's going on in your society, in your world, or in your family. And it leads to what's called chronic stress. Now your 35 mile per hour everyday normal cruising altitude turns into 55 mile per hour and your brain has to adjust to that. Here's the problem. Whereas with acute and episodic stress, the brain can wire down. At chronic stress, the brain doesn't wire down. You understand? Are you following me? So just like an engine that runs too high and too idle too high, what will the engine eventually do? It'll seize up and lock. Well, the brain seizes up and locks in different ways. That can lead to things like serious mental illness responses. That can lead to things like nervous breakdowns, psychotic breaks. Bottom line is that results in a rewiring of the brain that changes how we act, so much so that it can change how we regulate our own emotional drives. Self-regulation. This is the person that becomes impulsive, always stressed, always angry, always lashing out. And it takes more than therapy sometimes to get that done. It takes more than talking it through. Because when you live in this way every day and your brain has to adapt to being wigged out all the time, your brain does literally adapt, but it literally does reshape and reform itself in order to make it. This is how PTSD happens. This is the stories that we've been talking about over this series, which is why we're talking about it now. But it can also affect self-image. It can also affect how one sees themselves almost in a permanent way. 
That if someone has been abused and abused and abused again and again and again, the idea of engaging in another relationship where they are going to be anything less than abused is something that they oftentimes don't have the imagination for. It's why domestic violence victims often go back to people who continue to incur violence. We call it make a better choice. We call it do the better thing. What we call it in traumatology is trauma. We call it complex trauma. It's a rewiring of the brain. And it results in the repetitive behaviors that are no longer really an issue of repetitive behavior. It's about fear and survival. But then it impacts relational capacity. Because when we are living in this way, there are ways we can't relate to others, including our relationship with God. Now, we've already talked about the Western Hemisphere and the, or the, the left and the right and the full brain. Like if, 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 you've been visit, if, you had, if you're visiting with us and you hadn't caught that, that's on, you can catch all that online. So this is all picking up on the conversation we've been having. And what I'm simply trying to say is that the way we're formed is shaped profoundly by the society in which we live and the circumstances in which we are immersed. And if those circumstances are heavy and hard, it can literally change how the brain's makeup is and change how we respond in life. And it's not just make a better choice. It's a re-neurological wiring. It's like telling a person who lives every day with Tourette's to stop having Tourette's. You just don't make that choice. There's something you have to do to be formed out of that because you are formed into it. When we are used to living in survivability mode, we don't know how to live outside of survivability mode. It's one of the reasons why I think Jesus asked the man at the well, at the, at the pool of Bethesda, if he really wanted to be made well. Because I think there comes a point in time where you have to ask, do you really want something different? And that's the struggle. That's the struggle that we have. And that's the society in which we live. We live in this society of trauma and stress where all of these things are happening, where the reign of sin and death has come crashing into lives in such a way that the brokenness of this world is impacting people in profound ways. And us who are not educated on these issues and how this works will fall into a trap of thinking you can just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And the fact of the matter is you can't. What you can do as a Christian by the power of the Spirit is learn the power of your faith, to learn the power of the God who lives inside of us and how He can bring about some healing in our lives if we would learn how, the key is learn how, to turn our attention toward Him. Praise has power to bring healing into our minds and into our souls if we learn what that can mean. And the fact of the matter is, people who live in a state of complex and cumulative trauma, where the traumas fold on top of it and fold and fold and fold and fold again on top of the other, they can't do it on their own. They need, we need each other in this. Trauma is not healed through individualistic endeavors. Trauma is healed through communal endeavors where the Spirit of God is allowed to work. There are plenty of studies that now teach that the opposite of alcoholism is no longer sobriety. It is community. And it is living within a context of relational community, not show up to church once a week community, relational community 
where the spirit begins to do work that we can't explain, where the brain that has been rewired and the soul that's been malformed can finally find healing again. That's the critical nature of all of this. Let me say this last thing before we move on. Every piece of this liturgy that we celebrate, listen to me, this is important, because some of you have problems with some of the things we do. Every piece of the liturgy that we celebrate, from the reading of the same words in the confession to praying of the same prayers in the prayer, is a trauma-informed, biblically-rooted, historically-theologically-orthodox practice. See, the thing is, the early church didn't have a bunch of people they could go through, and they didn't have a bunch of medicine they could take. I'm pro-meds. But they didn't have meds that they could take back then. You know what they had? A deeply informed understanding that the God who made us knows us best, loves us most, and can bring about a healing. So they didn't argue what went on when they gathered together. They didn't complain about what went on when they got together. They embraced it because they knew the Holy Spirit of God could work in it. That is why they read prayers together. That is why they read words together. That is why they proclaimed Scripture together. That is why they heard a word given together. That is why they sang songs of praise together. That is why they gathered. That is why Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, said in Hebrews 10, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the manner of some, lest you lose your hope. Because when they were being persecuted and killed for their faith and traumatized over and over and over and over again, the only place they had to go was to turn their attention to the God who knew them best and loved them most, despite the fact of what they saw, despite the fact that their beloved loved one's head was cut off because they simply were Christians. The early church formed in their gatherings a liturgy that was, whether they would have known it or not, trauma-informed. Ours is the same. Not only is it orthodox, it is trauma-informed if you will turn your attention to the God who is present. 